The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. With absolutely no hesitation or shame whatsoever, with no reservations at all about what they were saying, Fox News host Maria Bartiromo and former Trump economic adviser Larry Kudlow suggested that Joe Biden might have such serious dementia that he may not even know where he is. He may not even know what he's signing and that he may not even really be the president, that it actually might be Susan Rice who is a sort of shadow president because Joe Biden is so unaware of his surroundings, almost like a weekend at Bernie's type situation that they're suggesting. Now, I could say a lot of things in advance of watching the clip. Let's first look at the clip to orient ourselves and then we'll talk about it. Because it turns out President Biden may be really, given his first couple of weeks, uh, the most left wing president we've ever seen. National Review editor Rich Lowry wrote a great column on this. His actions on spending and taxing and regulating on immigration and fossil fuels and uh, other cultural issues. He may be the most left wing. Um, I don't know whether he believes this stuff. I don't know whether he's an empty vessel for the far left wing of his party, but they are moving in the wrong direction from day one. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Who the heck is coming up with these ideas? You know, some people feel like Susan Rice is running things. Does, does, does President Biden understand what he's signing into law here with these executive orders? Well, that's a good question. Look, I, I'm not going to get into, you know, is he alert or not alert? He is who he is. Uh, I knew Joe Biden very well a long time ago, but not for the last eight or ten yeah. years. Joe Biden might be an empty vessel, they say who's coming up with the things that Biden is doing. Well, maybe it's Susan Rice, who's a shadow president running the show. Biden might not even understand the things he's signing. Is Joe Biden even alert? And that when you talk about alert, you know, it's a reference to this medical term that's used X three. When you observe a patient, they're oriented in three ways to person, place and time. It's like the most basic medical observation you can make about someone uh, as to whether they have even the cognitive capacity to know where they are and when it is talking about is Joe Biden even alert. So let's go through this in pieces. When Donald Trump was president, there were such serious questions about his cognitive state, the slurring, the not realizing people he's talking about are actually right in front of him, getting off Air Force One and wandering off and having to be brought back by a Secret Service agent, this sort of glitching and, and verbal uh, uh, interruptions to his speech that were very strange. Um, the talking about the oranges of an investigation, the citrus fruit, of course, appearing to have no memory whatsoever of things that happened shortly before arguing with people combatively about his cognitive state in bizarre ways. And numerous neurological and mental health experts sounded the alarm about Donald Trump. And we talked to some of them about it. And I would also ask those expert experts when I would interview them, I would say, what do you see with Joe Biden? Because there are people on the right talking about Joe Biden, dementia, cognitive decline. And all of these experts said essentially versions of the same thing, which was Joe Biden seems to have the type of slowdown that you see in more than 50 percent of people when they approach 80 years old. Uh, this is combining with Joe Biden's lifelong stutter 
to make him talk in a particular way. But these the, not my opinion, these experts, mental health and neurological experts said they did not see the same things in Biden that they saw with Trump. That was their opinion. OK, having not personally examined Trump nor Joe Biden, that was the opinion they came away with. Now, I've been clear. We shouldn't lie to ourselves and others and say Joe Biden is just in Joe Biden in 2021 is just like he was in 2012 when he ran circles around Paul Ryan in the vice presidential debates. If we were to say that, it's obviously untrue and we lose credibility. 70 year old Joe Biden in 2012 um, humiliated vice presidential candidate Paul Ryan when Romney was running against Barack Obama. Joe Biden had a rapidity and a slickness and a facility when debating that he did not have in 2020 when debating Donald Trump. There's no question about it. This is common in people when they get past the age of 75. Now, I'm, I, I'm not I'm not trying to be offensive. We have lots of folks in our audience in their 70s, in their 80s, even in their 90s. I'm thinking of our friend Sam in Cambridge, vibrant, energized in his 90s and a big supporter of the show. But if you think about this on a bell curve, uh, at age 78, lots of people are not as energetic as they were earlier in life. This is the reality of humanity. So having without question conceded that, does Joe Biden know what he's signing? Is Susan Rice actually the president behind the scenes? This is ridiculous to be proposing on a national cable news channel for Maria Bartiromo and Larry Kudlow to be doing. It's outrageous and absurd. And of course, you simply have to see Joe Biden answer questions from the press, as he's done half a dozen times in the two weeks he's been president to understand he knows what he's signing. He knows what he wants to do about this or that. He can talk in detail about pandemic response and who's on his staff and so on and so, so forth. You only need to watch five minutes of that to know that he understands the things that are going on at least politically, because that's what he's talking about. So they lost the election. They tried to then steal it and that failed. And now they're resorting to this. And by the way, most Americans like the things that Biden has done so far. You know, Kudlow saying this is the furthest left president ever. Well, maybe on paper that's actually true, but he hasn't really done that much yet. Uh, he's reversed some of the things Trump did and gotten us back to where we were with Obama. But these extreme leftist tendencies of Biden that are being claimed so far, he's not actually acted on any of them if they exist. And and for the most part, the country is relatively pleased with Joe Biden. Sixty three percent approval uh, in general of Joe Biden, much higher than Trump ever got at any point during his presidency. Sixty nine percent approval for Joe Biden's coronavirus response so far. 80% support for Joe Biden's federal mask mandate and on and on and on. So not only does Joe Biden know what he's doing, most of the country likes what Joe Biden is doing so far. So just absolutely wacky, irresponsible stuff there on Fox News. So this is starting to get it's more than pathetic. It's actually starting to get annoying. Republicans and even seemingly some reporters continue to try to shame Joe Biden and really also his press secretary, Jen Psaki, uh, under the guise of unity and bipartisanship into accepting a tiny package from Republicans on covid relief. And it just seems like Groundhog's Day at this point. Every day, Jen Psaki is having to tell reporters no, I don't want this tiny package from Republicans. She's rejecting the imposition of this tiny package 
every single day that she takes questions. So let's take it, a, a look at some uh, clips here. Here is Jen Psaki explaining the risk isn't a package that's too big. The risk is that we do a package that's too small, going through all the trouble of getting something passed and then it's too small. That's the real risk. And we don't want that. It's an exchange of, of ideas, an opportunity to do that. This group obviously sent a letter uh, with some outlines, some top lines of, of their um, concerns and their priorities, and he's happy to uh, have a conversation with them. What this meeting is not is a form for the president to make or accept an offer. Uh, so I think that's important uh, to convey to all of you. Uh, and his view, it remains uh, what uh, was stated in the statement last night, but also what he said on Friday, which is that the risk is not that it is uh, too big, this package. The risk is that it is too small. Uh, and that remains his view. And it's one he'll certainly express today. Then again, a few days ago, asked about bipartisanship. Why won't Joe Biden consider a smaller package? Why won't she consider a smaller package? Democratic leaders on the Hill appear to already be eyeing reconciliation. We heard uh, leader Chuck Schumer today saying that they're moving ahead with or without Republicans. Does this undermine your calls for bipartisanship and are you urging them to, to give this more time? Well, for we're all very close to this here, reconciliation and all the terminology in Washington. Everybody who's watching may not be. Uh, reconciliation is a parliamentary process. It's a way to get legislation through. Um, it's a way to get relief to the American people. Uh, the president wants this to be a bipartisan package, regardless of the mechanisms. Republicans can still vote for a package, even if it goes through if even if it goes through with reconciliation. There's no blood oath anybody signs. This is another good point. Just because Democrats might end up going through budget reconciliation to pass without uh, to pass the covid relief bill without initial Republican support, Republicans can still make the call to vote for. It. And what I mean by that is Republicans can demand a tiny, tiny package as much as they want. And Jen Psaki can say, I don't want the tiny package. Joe Biden doesn't want the tiny package. And eventually Democrats might say, it's the one point nine trillion dollar package just because Republicans opposed it during the, the, the discussion doesn't mean that after the fact, if that's what they ultimately get to vote on, they can't say, you know, a lot of my constituents actually like this. I am better off voting for the larger package rather than not, because I might have consequences with my constituents if I vote against this thing. Here's more from this week again about the size of the package. Jen Psaki is not willing to give any signal that Joe Biden will accept package size reduction. And I'm glad she's being clear about it. Two others on that. You said in your statement that the scale of what must be done is large. Let's bottom line it. Mm -hmm. Is $618 billion considered large by the White House? Uh, well, I think our statement last night made clear that uh, the president believes that the risk is not being too going too small, but going uh, going uh, not big enough. Again, with the small packages, what if it's too big? The issue is it being too small. And I have to tell you, in a sense, they're already Democrats have already decided instead of doing two thousand more dollars. They want to do fourteen hundred more dollars, which would combine with the six hundred from December to total two thousand. That's already smaller than what was promised by Joe Biden right around the time of the Georgia elections. They've already conceded. Uh, and I think that this is important. Even coming to the table with fourteen hundred instead of two thousand per person is already uh, shrinkage, for lack of a better term, in terms of the package size. Here's another one from yesterday. Again, reporters 
uh, uh, playing to Republicans who say, oh, it's too big, it's too much money. The president's bottom line is that this is a package. The risk here, as he has said many times, is not going to too big. It is going too small. That is, continues to be his belief, and that's why he can he supports uh, the efforts by Senator Schumer, Leader Schumer, and Speaker Pelosi to move this package forward. My sense is that this is not going to stop anytime soon. So, as I've said yesterday, pass the larger package and do it with or without Republicans. If Republicans really want to vote no, let them say it's bad, let them vote against and let them explain to their constituents why they didn't want to deliver a package of this size to them. And then constituents can decide, does this person really have my best interests in mind? And when it comes to the members of the House of Representatives in under, you know, what is it at this point? We're talking about 22 months insane, right? But in 22 months, those constituents can decide to either reelect or not their representatives who may reject the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package. I think that for Democrats, this is very much a risk worth taking. And I would like to see them just say this is enough. Joe Biden had the meeting. These 10 Republicans are obsessed with tiny packages, and that's all they kept proposing. Jen Psaki rejected the advances of the tiny package. Joe Biden doesn't. It's just time, guys. It's time. They've already delayed and they've already reduced the package size. I hate that this happened. But Democrats have already they, they sort of negotiated against themselves. And what I mean by that is Joe Biden said, I support. And if Ossoff and Warnock win, we will immediately send out two thousand dollar checks. Uh, it didn't happen immediately. And they're only talking about fourteen hundred. That's the negotiation. Democrats, as, as they often do, negotiating against themselves. That's it. No further negotiation. Let's move forward. Pass it via budget reconciliation. We were there were questions about Joe Manchin from the, what I've read over the last 24 hours. Joe Manchin is going to go for it. He will vote for the package. Uh, so it's time to do it. I would like to see it done within 24 hours. I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe 72, maybe 96. L let's stop this nonsense. Let me know your thoughts about it. Package size and all. You can find me on Twitter at D The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. When you see me sitting here at the microphone, oftentimes I'm wearing a shirt by a company called Teddy Stratford. And I love these shirts so much that I asked Teddy Stratford to be a sponsor of the show. And here's why I like their shirts so much. With other slim fit button up shirts, you often get this weird looking gap between the buttons where it looks kind of stretched out. But Teddy Stratford actually has a patented zipper that's hidden underneath the buttons, which secures the shirt against your chest so it doesn't look stretched. And most importantly, it just provides a nicer looking fit overall. And the entire shirt is specially designed to really improve the way your upper body looks when you're wearing it. It also has a special type of collar that prevents it from drooping down and spreading open, which is another really great thing about these shirts. All of these things really do a lot to make a big difference when you're looking at a shirt. And that's why I like to wear Teddy Stratford shirts on the show. Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15% off your first order. If you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout, that's P-A-K-M-A-N. One of our sponsors today is Lucy, and they are giving my audience 20% off. Lucy is a company founded by Caltech scientists with only one mission 
which is to help people quit smoking and vaping by offering a clean, affordable nicotine alternative. Now, many of you know, you've heard the stories. I've known several people in my life who have struggled with quitting smoking. I've seen how difficult it can be. And nicotine alternatives can be hugely helpful. Lucy offers a nicotine gum in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon and pomegranate. They also have lozenges which come in cherry ice flavor. Lucy is affordable. It'll ship right to your door. You don't have to go out to the store. Shipping is always free. You can buy single boxes or save with a subscription. It's time to throw the cigarettes away and get rid of the vape and Lucy can make it easier. You'll find a ton of excellent reviews online from countless people who have used Lucy to quit smoking and vaping. Go check them out at Lucy.co. That's L U C Y dot co. The URL is in the podcast notes and you will get 20% off when you use the coupon code Pacman. Quick disclaimer, I'm required to give these products contain nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Please don't forget, and how could you really, that our program is mostly funded by viewers and listeners like you. You can sign up for a membership at joinpakman.com. It does come with perks, including a daily members only bonus show. There's the free show, and then there's the bonus show every day, weekday for our members. Grab a membership at joinpakman.com. Use the coupon code BETTER21 if you please to get yourself a massive discount off of the cost of a membership. Some interesting discussions I spotted this morning on the David Pakman show subreddit. Now, you may or may not be participating in this subreddit. Uh, we have nearly 30,000 of our viewers and listeners subscribed to our subreddit. This is free. I'm selling you nothing. You can join the discussion at davidpackmancom slash reddit. One interesting post points out that the CEO of right wing social media platform parlor has been fired. And this is a wacky story. The trials and tribulations of parlor sound like they would make a good sort of like a for uh, limited run uh, dramatization on Netflix in a Netflix original now parlor, which was briefly offline after the riotous mob stormed the Capitol. They now have fired their CEO. John Matsey says he was removed as the chief executive. He didn't cite a reason, um, but apparently there has been a significant dispute within parlor as to how far they are going to take their a so-called commitment to free speech and open dialogue. And it's an absolute and total mess over at Parler, a comedy of errors. And who knows what the future of that platform holds? Um, I did sign up the CEO. This is the guy who at one point said, if any prominent leftist with over 100,000 Twitter followers signs up, we'll give him 20 grand. I said, I, I would take 20 grand. Sure. I'm not going to turn that down. Signed up and repeatedly notified John Matsey that I'm here and I'm I've got a hundred and at the time hundred and twenty hundred and thirty thousand Twitter followers. Uh, let me know how you want to send me the twenty k. And shockingly, I never heard back. Also, another post from the David Pakman Show subreddit: an article about Canada listing the Proud Boys movement as a terrorist group. Indeed, they are. Uh, Canada has announced that. 
the Proud Boys and 12 other groups are going to be designated as terrorist organizations. Some of these other groups we've mentioned on the show before, they include these radical right groups uh, like the Adam Waffen Division. Um, and many others whose names are even even more obscure. Uh, yeah, Canada is not uh, messing around here. They are moving forward uh, powerfully and rapidly with getting some of these groups listed as terrorist groups. Now, I, I lack uh, enough of an understanding of Canadian law to understand exactly what the legal repercussions of this are. But my instinct is that the reason Canada would do this is not just uh, sociological, but there that there are law enforcement reasons to do this as well um, in terms of prosecutorial discretion or abilities when it comes to dealing with such groups, although it would take a Canadian legal expert to tell me more about it. Join the discussion at davidpackmancom slash reddit. Like I mentioned, almost 30,000 of our viewers and listeners regularly participating on the David Pakman show subreddit. There are moderators, so we don't allow bullying. We don't allow doxing or any of that stuff. So uh, join the party. David slash Reddit. This is just too perfect. Uh, Donald Trump's beleaguered impeachment lawyers have misspelled United States in one of the early documents they put together for the impeachment defense of Donald Trump. Instead of saying the United States, they wrote the United States, U-N-I-T-E-S, Unitas, Unites States. These were the lawyers. <laughs> this is so insane. These were the lawyers hired Monday, I guess, after Trump's original lawyers quit on Sunday night. Um, they, uh, this was a document, a 14 page legal brief, um, written to members of the United States Senate, except instead it was written to members of the United States Senate. Um, it also, I mean, listen, it's remember when, uh, <laughs> I, I can't believe this is the timeline we're in, but remember when Rudy Giuliani, um, uh, Farted. I mean, I don't know what I could use a more, you know, <laughs> I could use another term. But when Rudy Giuliani farted three or four times during one of those bogus voter fraud hearings, and of course the fart was covered extensively, but it was not just the style that was weird about that event with Rudy Giuliani regularly farting while speaking. It was also the substance. The substance of what Rudy said, as I previously reported to you, was just as disgusting. And in this case, it's not just that the 14 page legal brief refers to the United States as the United States. It's also that it makes absurd legal arguments. The 14 page document argues that impeaching a former president is unconstitutional. Now, what you have to th there's there's so many reasons this is ridiculous. First of all, senators don't decide about the constitutionality of things in the United States. This is a political trial. OK, and although arguably too many senators are former lawyers and I've are, I've advocated for more uh, diversity in the types of folks uh, who are U.S. senators and, and members of Congress, uh, it is not up to the Senate to determine the constitutionality of things. That's number one. So a defense of Trump based on the alleged unconstitutionality of an after the presidency impeachment 
is unfortunately invalid at its base, but it doesn't matter because they can make whatever argument they want and the Senate can can accept or reject the argument. But more importantly, Trump was not impeached once he was no longer in office. And even more importantly, you can impeach a president after they are out of office. Remember, the trial is happening after Trump is out of office, but impeachment happens in the House of Representatives and impeachment took place before January 20th, when the House of Representatives impeached Donald Trump for a second time, Donald Trump was president of the United States, uh, unless time now functions in, a, in some other way that I don't uh, understand. But the Senate has previously uh, had trials on impeachment for officials who at that point had already left office. So what's more embarrassing in the end that Trump's own lawyers couldn't even correctly spell the name of the country in which these proceedings are taking place or the fact that they're making an argument that is not only wrong, but also pathetic and not up to the jurisdiction of the Senate. Take your pick. It's like uh, it, it's like a choose your own adventure. And um, according to uh, a report from Axios, uh, Trump has actually started to sort of privately concede that a lot of the representation he's had has been embarrassing to him. It's it reflects a certain amount of self-awareness that we've not really seen from Donald Trump during his presidency. But at this point, who even cares? This is starting on Tuesday. We'll be covering much of it. And if this is a sign, if United States is any indication of how Trump's legal team is going to perform at next week's impeachment trial, it's going to be quite a quite a scene to watch and we'll be covering much of it. It remind when I read United States, it reminded me of God bless the United States. Many of you, I'm sure, remember that the Israelis and Palestinians. How does this even happen? Like, doesn't spell check protect this, uh, prevent this from happening? Like I'm talking on a technical level. How does it actually happen? And um, one other thought I had as I was reading this is one of the big supposed selling points about Donald Trump when he was running for president was that his best skill is hiring people, only the best people. He's the he might not know about foreign policy. He might not be an expert on uh, what whatever anything, uh, but he hires the best people. And I have a hard time thinking of someone who has demonstrated themselves to be worse at hiring people than Donald Trump has been. Trump's best hilariously or sadly, Trump's best employee might have been Christopher Krebs, who said the election was secure and you really lost, Mr. President. And Trump fired that guy. The few people that by mere chance seem to be reasonable people that Trump has hired or allowed to work for him seem to be the first ones that Donald Trump fires. And it is all a comedy of errors. Uh, and we will be covering it. We will be covering much of next week's impeachment trial live on YouTube, Twitch and Facebook. And I hope that you will join me. We will also have continued coverage of the United States on our Instagram page. You can find us at David Pakman show on Instagram and follow me while you're there at David We'll take a quick break and be back with Tom Hartman right after this. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you ever feel like you just don't have enough time to read all the books you want to read, you have to check out one of my favorite apps called Blinkist. Blinkist takes thousands of popular nonfiction books 
and distills each one down into an ebook or audiobook that you can get through in just 15 minutes where you're getting all the key takeaways from the book. Just imagine how you'll be able to expand your horizons and knowledge by being able to soak up all of the important insights from 10 different books in an afternoon. Obviously, it's perfect for exposing yourself to a new book you otherwise wouldn't have time for, or you can use it to revisit a book you've already read or use it to preview a book before you buy the full version and read it. I recently read A Brief History of Time, of course, by the great Stephen Hawking. This is a book that I have been aware of for so long and other things got in the way. And it was fantastic to check it out on Blinkist. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have 27 different nonfiction categories and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month and you get access to the entire library. But you can try it totally free and get 25% off a subscription when you go to Blinkist.com slash Pacman. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Pacman. One of our sponsors is Hydrant, which is a delicious fruit drink powder that you mix into water for rehydration. And they're giving you 25% off your first order. It's made with four key electrolytes that the body needs, powerfully supporting your hydration. Hydrant tastes great. It's made with real fruit juice. It's been a great part of my daily routine for a while now. Keeping myself hydrated puts me in a better mood. The body needs hydration for basic energy and focus and hydrant is the perfect way to rehydrate, especially because it's cost effective and lower in sugar compared to all of those popular sports drinks that are out there. You really have to try it for yourself to see what I mean. It tastes great. They also have a variety called hydrant immunity packed with vitamins A, B, C and D, which is also very much worth trying. Hydrant has a full refund guarantee if you're not satisfied and you'll get 25% off your first order when you go to drinkhydrant.com slash Pacman or enter the code Pacman at checkout. That's drink H Y D R A N T dot com slash P A K M A N coupon code Pacman. I've put the link in the podcast notes. Welcome back to the David Pakman show. It's great to welcome Tom Hartman back to the program, of course, host of the Tom Hartman program and author of the Hidden History series. His latest book is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. Uh, always great to have you on, Tom. Thanks, David. It's, it's great to be here with you. So let's um, let's go back a little bit, as you always do in the books and talk about the, the origins of some of these issues that still plague plague the country today. How far back does this sort of uh, oligarchical apparatus exist in the history of the United States? Well, it goes back to uh, arguably, you know, Plymouth Rock and slightly before. Um, but. Yeah, because we fought a, a a war, you know, the Revolutionary War against the oligarchy of the United Kingdom. It was called a monarchy, but it's just another version of oligarchy. Um, oligarchy being defined broadly as rule by the rich, um, the consolidation of political power into a small number of very wealthy hands. It's sort of the political version of what monopoly is in the economic marketplace, you know. 
And uh, and then we, you know, we've had uh, a, this, we're now in the midst of our third real internal challenge by oligarchs in the uh, era from the 1830s to the 1860s, uh, largely as a result of the invention of the cotton gin. Uh, the South consolidated massively. Small farmers, uh, particularly cotton farmers, were wiped out. Large plantations uh, and their owners rose up and took over the entire political structure of the South, um, declared war on the North, didn't like that pesky democracy next door that was, you know, agitating and rabble rousing among their ranks. And, uh, you know, we we fought a bloody war against these oligarchs and, and defeated them and, in fact, uh, broke up their plantations. Parchment is now a, a state prison in Louisiana. Robert E. Lee's plantation, one of the largest, is now Arlington National Cemetery, et cetera. So and then they rose up again in the 1880s, 1890s with the Industrial Revolution, a new generation of oligarchs. And. Uh, to the point that, uh, you know, in the 1930s, in the early 19, in 1933, um, they tried to hire Smedley Butler to uh, kidnap or assassinate Franklin Roosevelt. They already had enlisted over 100,000 uh, right-wing veterans out of this right-wing veterans group to march on the White House and seize him. Um, we overthrew that, and, and, and Roosevelt openly said, you know, they hate me and I welcome their hatred. He put the oligarchs back in the bottle and they stayed there until the 1980s. Reagan let them back out again, along with a little help from the Supreme Court. And today, you know, we're now facing the third major confrontation between oligarchy and democracy. And, and uh, you know, this study from uh, Gillens and Page suggests that we are now in a full-blown oligarchy. And the, the question facing America today is, do we continue going down that road? Or do we go back to democracy? Because oligarchies are very unstable, and oligarchs tend to oligarchies tend to resolve themselves in one of two ways: either the oligarchs are defeated, as we did in the 1860s and as we did in the 1930s, or the oligarchs turn a nation into a police state, as Viktor Orban has done in Hungary or Putin in Russia, uh, in order to maintain their power. Those are the choices we're facing right now. When it comes to sometimes what you might call the conventional wisdom around oligarchy, which is often not uh, it might be conventional, but it's not necessarily accurate. There's this idea that the biggest acceleration in uh, this uh, oligarchical overclass, so to speak, was during industrialization, in part because of the ability to really concentrate wealth. Uh, among those who could own a lot of those uh, factories and take advantage of the industrialization that was taking place. Is it accurate to point that as the biggest moment of acceleration of this or would that not be right? Well, technological changes um, always have massive societal impacts. I mean, you know, you can you can you can find that all the way back to the agricultural revolution, the Bronze Age, you know, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the uh, you know, the invention of steel, um, et cetera. And and typically those kinds of changes, as the as society gets reordered, you you have a class within society that succeeds in grabbing as much of the pie as they can. Um, the uh, the technological innovation in the in in the eighteen hundreds in the early eighteen hundreds was the invention by Eli Whitney of the cotton gin. You know the hardest part of the the bottleneck in the production of cotton is getting those seeds out of a bowl of cotton. They're really hard to pull out. And the cotton gin could do what 50 enslaved people could do in the same amount of time. So the big plantations, which could afford the cotton gins, were able, you know, they're 50 times more efficient. And that's how they wiped out their small competitors. 
Similarly, in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, you saw people like Carnegie and Rockefeller and and uh, the DuPont family and and or Mr. DuPont, I forget his first name, Alfred DuPont, I think. No, it was Alfred. In any case, uh, you, you saw these guys doing essentially the same thing, monopolizing you know the wealth and then converting that uh, economic power into political power, and that's that's what we've seen the billionaire class do now in the last 40 years in the United States. How do you apply this analysis to what we've seen over the last year during this pandemic, where we've seen uh, when it comes to business, we've seen uh, very large businesses that uh, already had certain degrees of infrastructure in place uh, sweep up even more market share as a lot of small businesses, mom and pops and others for a variety of different reasons have gone under likely permanently in the cases of, of many of them? Well, it's it, it, we're, we're witnessing uh, a another reconsolidation uh, this time in part because of the pandemic, but also in large part because, you know, in 1983, Ronald Reagan stopped enforcing the, the antitrust laws in this country. And we haven't had a president since then that did enforce them. So, um, you know, if the if, if the NFL said, you know, we're just not going to enforce laws against people punching each other in the gut as they run by or ripping face masks off. Pretty soon, eventually, you're going to have, you know, the team that's the best at punching people and ripping face masks off is going to be the team that, that's winning all the games in the NFL. Um, that's what's happened here. I mean, you know, it might take a while before you get there because everybody, you know, considers it kind of distasteful. But when Reagan changed the rules of business, um, he really set us up on this trajectory to where we're at right now. You mentioned the two ways that oligarchy can go. It can be defeated or it can become the police states that you described Orban, Putin, et cetera. What tends to determine whether it goes one way or the other? The people, whether the you know, it, typically what what precipitates the crisis that flips oligarchy in one direction or the other is 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 usually an economic crisis. Um, and, and, you know, that's what Russia is facing right now with the uh, very, very low oil prices, which is what their economy is you know, based on. Um, uh, with Orban, it was the uh, Syrian refugees flooding into Hungary and his, his and, and it produced both an economic and a, and a, and a social slash political crisis. And his first the first thing that Orban did uh, when he uh, moved from being a president to being an autocrat was to say that he was going to build a wall along the southern border of Hungary uh, to keep out the Syrian refugees. He actually built that wall, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and it's amazing. There's a whole chapter in my book about this, how Trump basically is following was following Orban's playbook blow by blow by blow. I mean, it was just just breathtaking. And uh, so, you know, it's a crisis usually that precipitates that. What is it that distinguishes an oligarch from simply a billionaire or a, a multi multi millionaire? Is it a political power component? Is it something about the political system in which they operate? Generally speaking, I mean, you know, the, the definition is subject to popular whim. <laughs> there are dictionary definitions for an oligarch, um, you know, typically described as a very wealthy person. Um, but but I think in the in this context, and certainly in the modern context, when we talk about oligarchs, whether we're talking about Russian oligarchs or American oligarchs or, or whatever, um, we're talking about people who have amassed great wealth and are using that for not only increasing their own wealth, um, but seizing the political power and process in a way that will increase their own wealth and guarantee the continuation of their wealth and their political power.
Some might argue that the successes against the oligarchy that we saw during the New Deal era, uh, FDR, you, you mentioned that earlier in your sort of, sort of kind of brief history of the trajectory of this in the United States. Some might argue that a combination of an additional many decades of entrenchment of power among the few in the United States combined with the media apparatus that's fomented by high speed Internet and, and the, the sort of uh, fragmentation of media um, make this a very different situation from that in which the successes during FDR and the New Deal era took place. And so it really needs to be a different roadmap for achieving maybe a similar outcome. Do you agree with that, that circumstances have changed to such a degree that the playbook must be different to some degree or, or not at all or completely? What FDR did was uh, he repudiated the economic policies of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge and, and Herbert Hoover. Those policies were almost identical to the ones that Ronald Reagan put into place that we're confronting right now. Uh, when Herbert Hoover ran for president, his two big sales pitches were, number one, uh, a return to normalcy. That was his slogan. What he meant by that was dropping that top tax rate at 91% that Woodrow Wilson had put in during World War One back down to 25%, which he did. And his second one was more business in government, less government in business. In other words, privatize and deregulate, which was Reagan's agenda, uh, which he did. And that took us to the Great Depression. Um, the generation before that, in the 1890s, um, the supply-siders, so-called, had this theory called the horse and sparrow theory, which was that because back then people, you know, didn't have cars, they rode horses and the streets in, in, uh, in every town in America were filled with horse, you know, piles of horse manure and, um, and sparrows loved to pick, you know, the occasional bit of undigested grain out of them. And so the theory was if you feed the horses more oats, more undigested oats will come out the back end, which will feed the sparrows. In other words, give the rich people their tax cuts and that will trickle down to the average worker. Yeah, it's sort of a farmhouse, uh, a farmhouse trickle down. Yeah, recycled now three times in the last, you know, what, 180 years, 160 years. What should the playbook be for the people at this point in time? Well, what FDR did is he went back to classic economics, Adam Smith economics um, and and in that. Um, you know, he said that basically what drives an economy is demand, not supply. And demand is uh, aggregate demand is the phrase economists use. It's it's a fancy word that really just means wages. So if we want to get our economy back in order, what we need to do is get money into the hands of average people. And uh, to, to a certain extent, that means you know, going back to to top tax brackets that that are um, substantial, you know, well over 50 percent and making sure that when people do work, they're properly and appropriate, uh, appropriately remunerated, you know, paid for that. Um, so you've got the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Uh, we need to bring back labor unions, uh, which pretty much nobody's talking about right now, but it really should be at the top of the agenda and strengthen workplace protections. And, and worker protections right across the board. And we need to strengthen the social safety net. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't consider healthcare a right and offer basically free healthcare to everybody. We're the only developed, we're the only developed country in the world that has 
medical debt as a cause of personal bankruptcy. We're the only developed country in the world that has student debt, anything close to what we have. Um, every other developed country in the world offers either free or very inexpensive college to, to anybody who can qualify. We don't. It's insane. You know, we need to we need to go back to the foundation, you know, foundational economics. This was stuff that literally Thomas Jefferson was pitching. He started the first free university in the United States, the University of Virginia, and was very proud of the fact that it was completely free. He thought that would build America. He was right. It seems that one of the big propaganda victories that the economic right, I mean, going back to the time, maybe Reagan forward when it comes to these uh, supply side trickle down ideas, one of the biggest propaganda victories they've had is pushing out the understanding of the demand side of economics completely. And you see it even when minimum wage is discussed, you hear the discussion of, well, that's going to increase costs for the businesses and they'll have to lay people off and they won't be able to afford employees. It ignores it. Uh, which to some degree ignores um, that labor is only one uh, one input cost for right. the, the product or service that's being produced. But it also ignores the fact that you're creating demand side stimulus. And all of a sudden, all of those employees have more money that they can spend at other businesses. It's it, it has been a huge victory to completely make it a one sided conversation, has it not? That's right. And and uh, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. It, you know, and, and it's not an accidental propaganda victory. You know, right. Lewis Powell laid this out in 1971. I documented in this book on, on American oligarchy. And, and then Nixon the next year put him on the Supreme Court where he proceeded, you know, in a series of decisions to cement these policies in place. Um, yeah, but uh, and 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 groups like the Heritage Foundation and the, and the, the you know the the funding of universities around the country, uh, university professors in economics and political science and things like that, uh, think tanks that are publishing constantly. I mean, do any Google search on pretty much anything that has to do that is peripheral to the interests of the billionaire class, and you'll find just you know the first twenty links are going to be right wing propaganda. Um, it's it's really pretty breathtaking how much money they've put into this, how how large a, an infrastructure they have built out since 1971 to promote this right wing worldview that that really only benefits the top one percent of Americans. When we're thinking about this nascent Biden administration, to to what degree are you optimistic, if at all, about? Uh, Joe Biden making good on um, the promises he made specifically with regard to this type of uh, wealth inequality and economic policy that we're talking about. I'm very encouraged so far. The biggest challenge that Biden is going to have is the filibuster. And if Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema continue to oppose eliminating the filibuster, um, you know, we're screwed. Uh, He'll get one or two things done by reconciliation, and that'll be it. You can only use reconciliation once or in some cases, rare cases, twice a year. And uh, and and then the Republicans will, you know, Mitch McConnell will do what he's been doing for the last, you know, couple of decades. He'll just block everything. And, uh, you know, we've got, you know, this is why people need to call 202-224-3121, which is the switchboard of of the United States Senate and deliver their opinions, their thoughts about whether the filibuster should stay or go to Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema and every other Democratic member of the Senate. That's 202-224-3121 if you didn't write that down real fast. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, because we've got to end the filibuster. Otherwise, we're screwed. 
Uh, We've been speaking with Tom Hartman, host of the Tom Hartman program. The newest book is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. Uh, we, We will all be watching together, Tom, and I always appreciate your insights. Thank you, David. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be on your program. Thank you for inviting me. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for covid-19 and they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell. And that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you, and I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap, They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com. So this is absolute and total gold. Uh, We've been talking about how will Republicans defend or not defend radical Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's various comments, including about a Jewish space laser starting wildfires when she harassed teen activist David Hogg on the streets of Washington, D.C., when she encouraged violence and even posted to Facebook about the uh, murder of Democrats, uh, denying 9-11, denying Sandy Hook and so on and so forth. And so far we saw on yesterday's show, we saw Republican Congressman Steve Scalise turn the question into an answer about Joe Biden, China and carbon. So that's one approach, which is just don't even answer the question, answer about something else. Attack Joe Biden. We saw on yesterday's show Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace did do a both sides thing, which was to say, okay, well, both sides have crazy people in them. So that's sort of like a what about ism both sides type response. Trump brown noser and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is taking a third approach, which is to say that the comments might have been taken out of context. He barely seems able to even get the names right of the various conspiracies touted by Marjorie Taylor Greene. But he says, what about context? Take a look at this. Oh, that you have spent some time with her. <laughs> Where do you yeah. come down on this idea of whether she should be stripped of committee assignments? Well, rather than me talking about what she may have said, I want to hear from her. So I flew down to Georgia with her on Air Force One, had a very pleasant experience with her, uh, very, very cordial, very pleasant. So here's what I think she owes herself, quite frankly, her constituents in the country. Is that true? Was she misquoted? Was she taken out of context? I want to know, does she still believe that Sandy Hook's 
was faked, that, that 9-11 was an inside job, that there's a Jewish laser, laser in the sky starting fires in California. I don't know. I know how words can be twisted. I know how you can be taken out of context. But rather than me talking about her, I would like her to be definitive. I seriously love that. Does she really think a Jewish space laser or laser, as Lindsay says, is starting wildfires? Because, you know, her comments about a Jewish space laser might lack some context within which they'd be reasonable comments to make. We need the full context of when she talked about a Jewish space laser. What can you imagine that being the defense? The only context that would be relevant about what Marjorie Taylor Greene said about a Jewish space laser would be if she had said what I am about to say is a joke right before saying it. Uh, short of that, what sort of context would make a comment like that about Jewish space lasers even remotely reasonable? And in terms of context, much of this stuff was on a post on Facebook. That's the context. The post is the context. And this is just another form of Republican gaslighting. Now, the, the, think of some other examples. Uh, is there a context that makes the statement the moon landing was faked reasonable? I guess the context would be I'm about to say something that's a joke. Like, I can't think of another context that would make the statement the moon landing was faked reasonable. Vaccines cause autism might be a totally reasonable thing if we had the context only. Yeah, but the only context would be I'm about to say something that is untrue. Maybe when she stalked teen activist David Hogg and it was caught on video, Maybe there was missing context there as well. I don't know. And while we're at it, maybe there's context that makes Lindsey Graham's comment less ridiculous, although I can't really think of what it would be. Now, here's a serious question. Is it possible that Republicans like Lindsey and others don't know what context means? So when they say this was taken out of context, they actually don't understand the meaning of that? Is that a possibility? I mean, we've had a lot of times where we'll be engaged in, you know, a weeks long or month long discussion uh, with the discussion maybe is a bit of a, a favorable term, but a disagreement with the right about something. And after two months, you'll realize, oh, my goodness, they don't even know what this word means. We're arguing about something, assuming both sides understand the meaning of the words we're using. And this entire time they're they're using a word that they don't even understand or they misunderstand. Maybe Lindsey Graham doesn't know what context means, but in any case, it's sort of like a pick your own adventure. Either Marjorie Taylor Greene misspoke or it was posted by a staffer, not really Marjorie Taylor Greene, or maybe the video was deep faked or maybe it was taken out of context uh, or she was telling a joke or she was on a medication at that point in time, like just pick one, whichever one makes you feel better about what she said, pick your own adventure and go with it. And so far, three different uh, responses to Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments. Let's now talk about the fourth response. There is a new war on Christmas for Republicans that's playing very heavily on Fox News and other right wing media, and it is so-called cancel culture. Now, never mind the irony of people who supposedly have been canceled and silenced regularly appearing on national television like Fox News to claim that they no longer have a voice. I understand the irony of that and the absurdity of that. Let's put that aside for a second. OK, 
We are now going to look at clips of the fourth type of response we're seeing to the outrageous and disgusting comments made by Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. So let me catch you up on the three types of responses we've looked at so far. Republican Steve Scalise went with attack Joe Biden when asked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. We saw that yesterday. That's response type number one. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace said there are crazies on both sides when asked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's the second response. A what about ism type of thing. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, as we just saw, said maybe the comments were taken out of context, which in this case is a form of gaslighting. That's the third type of response we saw from Republicans. And now response type number four is Republican Congressman Jim Jordan, a disgusting person by all accounts going with if we were to punish Marjorie Taylor Greene, it would be the cancel culture. He actually says in this first clip from Fox News yesterday, think of the cancel culture. Let's watch and listen. Republicans. So, so, so there are many members of your own party <laughs> who are taking issue here. Uh, let's take a quick break and listen to Karl Rove on this very issue. We'll get your response, Congressman. If you believe that the Jews control a space laser that, that, that starts fires in Northern California and that there's some unnamed high-ranking government official who's got a heretofore unknown security classification called Q and all the nutty things that flow with that, you should be taken off the prestigious uh, House Education Labor Committee and confined to the dark recesses of the, of, of, of the furthest building away from the House floor and then let the voters decide in the next election. She is a problem for our party. Party. Congressman, your response. No one, no one's condoning the remarks that she made. I've not heard any Republican say that those were appropriate. So that's not the issue. The issue is once this starts, tell me where it ends, Sandra. Where does it, who's next? I mean, look, think of the cancel culture, Sandra. I said this on January 13th on the House floor during debate. I told the Democrats, if you guys keep going down this road, keep attacking people, their First Amendment free speech rights, where does it end? It won't stop with Republicans. It'll go It'll go to all of us. And 13 days later, what happened in, in California? Dianne Feinstein's elementary school's name was taken off. So this will, this will never end. And if we don't stop it now, everyone, every single American's at risk. And that's what concerns me. So Jim Jordan, a Republican from the party of so-called personal responsibility, is saying there, if there are ever consequences to people's speech, it's cancel culture and it's bad. There cannot be consequences to speech per this statement from Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan appears to believe that free speech includes total immunity from having your speech uh, lead to repercussions. And then Jim Jordan actually has the audacity to say in the middle of a global pandemic that still killed 4000 people yesterday, cases plummeting, hopefully deaths will soon, but still killing 4000 people a day. Jim Jordan has the audacity, the testicular fortitude to say that cancel culture is the most dangerous thing happening in the United States today. But you know what? We have a First Amendment. What I don't want is people canceling everyone else. That is the most dangerous thing happening in our country today. Right now, Joe Biden says during his inauguration speech he wants to unify. Well, it's tough to unify when you're impeaching a president who's already left office. It's tough to unify when you're trying to cancel 75 million people who voted for that guy. That is what's tough to do. So I hope we can get past this. I hope we can get back to embracing the Bill of Rights. 
Now, most people upon hearing that will realize that nothing he's saying makes any sense. But this idea that any consequence to speech is an infringement on the First Amendment is a really dangerous idea. And unfortunately, there are lots of Americans who watch Fox News and think you can learn about the First Amendment by watching Fox News. And that's really scary because they end up believing this stuff. Imagine the most dangerous thing, not the virus, not the people who rioted at the Capitol on January 6th, not the dangers of allowing more and more time to pass without passing covid relief. Cancel culture by which he means consequences for Marjorie Taylor Greene's insane comments. That is the most dangerous thing facing the country. Replace the words cancel culture with consequences and reinterpret this consequences for disgusting speech would be the most dangerous thing in the country. What? Accountability is a slippery slope, according to Jim Jordan. And in truth, if you know anything about Jim Jordan's history, Jim Jordan's the last guy who should be telling us what's dangerous. He has a history of overlooking real danger and has been accused of failing to report abuse that was happening of college wrestlers when he was assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State. I don't know if I'm supposed to call it wrestling, but I call it wrestling. Uh, he's the last guy to tell us about who should be telling who, who should be listing what is most and least dangerous. Anyway, he's horrible. Jim Jordan is sort of the prototype of the kooky American politician that the world sees and wonders what the hell is wrong with the United States. We have a voicemail number. That number is two one nine two David P. I got a lot of voicemails about this recent uh, Bill Maher segment. Take a listen to this. Hey, D. Um, on the most recent episode of Bill Maher's show, like January 30th or something like that, he had two evolutionary biologists on that not only said that they were 90% sure that coronavirus started in a lab, but they looked a little bit confused at why the rest of the world doesn't think that. I was wondering if you had heard anything about scientists yeah. thinking this. I actually saw the segment and the two evolutionary biologists that the caller is referring to are Brett Weinstein and uh, I, I think it's his wife, uh, Heather Haying. Haying, I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I did see the segment on Bill Maher and they they, they made uh, statements to the uh, to the tone of they think it's quite plausible that um, the coronavirus was uh, made in a lab in China either on uh, and, and it could have been released or maybe it got out. And um, I, uh, you know, I've, I've exchanged a few messages over the years with Brett Weinstein. I've invited him on the program before and he's never taken me up on it. Uh, to me, those comments are not the ones I look to when I try to, you know, um, I would go to a virologist and other folks who specialize in viruses for opinions about uh, whether there's any reason to believe that covid was man-made and or released on purpose or accidentally from a Chinese lab. I don't know where evolutionary biologists are, are um, getting the framework with which to say things like what Brett and Heather said. And my view continues to be that of what virologists are saying, which are and I'm summarizing here. While it has not been definitively disproven that covid could have come from a lab, there is no evidence at this point in time to believe that that's the case. 
And that's my position right now. And everybody else can sort of judge for themselves what they think are uh, reasonable or responsible comments to be uh, to be, ma- be be making about that. I am not trying to suppress anyone's speech. I don't think it's something that should be, uh, you know, nobody should be barred from investigating the origins of the virus. And uh, that's my understanding of uh, the consensus of virology at this point in time. We've got a great bonus show for you today. Get instant access by becoming a member at joinpacman.com. <laughs>